I am Pastor Corrine Boroff, Senior Pastor at Anderson First United Methodist Church. Thank you for listening to our worship service today. If you want to learn more about this church, visit our website at andersonfirst.org. Have a blessed day and enjoy the message. God's word for us this morning is from Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is God's word for God's people, and all God's people said, Thanks be to God. to now introduce the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is indeed a pleasure to be among the people called Methodist this morning as we gather together to praise God's name, to love the Lord, and to share with him our hope and our faith. Oh, it's so good to be with you this morning. You know a little bit about me. You know I'm a a man of the cloth, a clergyman. You may not know, but I grew up in a home where my 
father was an Anglican priest. My two grandfathers were Anglican priests. So you can imagine, I'm speaking to the men in the room now, the last thing I wanted to become was an Anglican priest. But it was God's call upon my life, just as I hope you are aware that God calls each of us. Some of us are called to be clergy, but all of us are called by God to be God's people. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, Mr. Wesley's custom and the good Reverend Board of can confirm that my normal is a two-hour sermon. <laughs> you think I'm being funny, but I'm being absolutely truthful. So my, the length of my sermon will be a direct corollary to how responsive you are. Amen? Amen. I thought I understood the Methodist people. Well, there was a man in the 1500s, George Herbert, who wrote what has been called the elixir. And this is the prayer with which I always begin my sermons. Would you pray with me? Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. For thee, O Lord, for thee. Amen. Well, as I said, tis a privilege to be with you this morning. I was just with an acquaintance uh, earlier in the week. This is only my second trip to America. I was with an acquaintance from Indiana. I believe that's how you say it. Is it not Indiana or something thereabouts? Well, this acquaintance of mine shared a, a great love that he had, but also a great grief about a former bishop from this Indiana conference who suddenly passed a month ago. He shared with me, and he asked me where I was going this week, and I said, well, one of the places I will be in Anderson, Indiana, to the First United Methodist Church, and he said, oh, Bishop Coiner, that's his home church. That's where he grew up. That's where he learned the Lord. That's where he was baptized and confirmed. <clears throat> and so I share with you in your grief, but also I want to thank you for your faithfulness, lo, these many generations. This friend of mine shared so much about how much Bishop Coiner had learned from this congregation, how he had been baptized and confirmed here, how he understood how the church works from being a part of this congregation, how his mother and father and his sisters all called this congregation home. And so I bring you both... Uh, gratitude and uh, a prayer for your grieving as my friend is grieving the loss of this great man. But thank you for how you taught and inculcated in him the faith. Like your former bishop, I too grew up in a family that understood and was devout and holy. My mother was the daughter of an Anglican priest. My grandfather preached and was the pastor of the largest church in London. And I don't mean London, Kentucky. 
<laughs> My grandfather was uh, what we called a dissenter, which meant he was not in agreement with the church at that time because the church and the king were so closely aligned and he could not con uh, conceive of that as the way it should be. And so in the year long before I was born, in the year of our Lord, 16 and 62, he was ejected from his church. This man, of a, he, he was a great preacher, a man of great faith, and for the rest of his life, some 40 years, he was not allowed to preach. How it must have broken his heart. How he must have been rejoicing in heaven when he learned that his son and his daughter would be proclaimers of the word how he amazed. My mother was uh, educated and a learned woman in a time when women did not read. And she was determined that all, did you know I had seven sisters? All seven of my sisters in the early 1700s learned to read not only our English language but the native Greek. I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you learned Greek and Latin from your mother? <laughs> Mr. Wesley so can say, my mother, this passionate and inveterate learner, instilled in all of her 10 surviving children. She actually had 19 children, but 10 of us survived. And all 10 of us learned to read the New Testament in Greek. I won't ask you how many of you could do that. But all ten of us could, not because we went to some school where they taught it, but because mother was passionate about making sure that we learned it. Now my father, Samuel, his father too was a priest in the Church of England. He too was a dissenter. He too was kicked out of his church. My grandfathers, both of them, were, I guess you could say, uh, those who did not always go along with the status quo. Maybe that was my prima in seeing a different way to be God's person as well. So my father, though, was a, a strict adherent, a, a supporter of the king in every way, so much so that the most decisive moment of my life occurred because of his alignment with the king. Now, how could, how could absurd could that be? But it is so. You see, my father, every Sunday in holy worship, just as we are doing now, it was a part of the Anglican worship tradition that during the time of prayers that the priest would say, and God keep and bless the king, to which the congregation would reply, Amen. And he would say this week after week, just as we pray the Lord's Prayer, it was a part of the set prayers of our congregation and our people. But on one Sunday, when he prayed in God, bless the king and keep him safe, he noticed my mother did not say, Amen. At dinner on Sunday, he said, Suki, that was, my mother's name was Susanna, but he always called her Suki. He said, Suki, why did you not say amen when I prayed for the king? To which she replied about King James, I could not pray for that man. At that moment, my father arose from the table, went to his bedroom, 
packed some things, said not a word, got on his horse and went to London for 18 months. It was not a good time for our family, I'm told. I'm also told that nine months after Father returned, some eight, it had been 18 months he'd been away, some nine months after he returned, I appeared. <laughs> you get that, don't you? Yes. <laughs> so as a, a very young boy, all along, the fa my father was praying for the king, and so he would pray and God bless the king. Well, in our country, now, now Epworth, a little village from which I come, is some 150 miles north of London or thereabouts, and and it, uh, it's quite a swampy marshland. It's called, we call it Fen, F-E-N, Fen country. And it's a place where most of the men fed their families by hunting and trapping. It was marshland, swampy. But the king, King James, the one that mother could not any longer support, had a grand vision that he was going to drain the swampland and turn it into farmland. Now, if you're a farmer, that is wonderful news. If you feed your family by hunting and trapping, tis not such good news. So much so, in fact, he was so determined that he even brought in those Dutch men who knew how to dig and to drain it all, and so they were there for years turning it into farmland. And every week, Father praying for the king so much so that many of the men in the congregation, and knowing that my father was a Tory and a, indeed a strong supporter of the king, also became angry with my father. So much so that they set our home on fire. Not once, not twice, but on the third occasion, the little brick, not brick, but uh, stucco and and tenement, I was very young then, and a thatched roof, and they threw, they hoisted up some flames on the roof, and it burned down finally. Please tell me you will not do that to your pastors, that you will not burn down their homes. Amen to that? Yes, yes, yes. But twas so. And on that occasion, in my sixth year, and November of 1709, they did just that, and all of the little Wesleys got out except a little guy named Jackie. That's what Mom calls me, Jackie. And she looked up in the second-story window, and there she could see me peering out and down, and she immediately fell to her knees knowing that I was a goner. My father, the same, began to turn, he could not look, he turned his head, and I know of my father so well, he was praying, O oh God, accept him into your kingdom, triumphant and eternal, when a rather large, tall man, a brave man, hoisted a, a smaller man upon his shoulders, and they came up to me as close as they could, and the man on top of the other man's shoulders signaled for me to raise the window, and I guess by God's strength I could. And then with the voice only I could describe as an angel, he said, jump into my arms, Jackie, jump. 
So I jumped and so I was saved and so I am here now to share with you. But if I live to be a hundred, I will understand myself as a brand plucked from the burning. A brand plucked from the burning. One who was a goner but saved by God's grace. And the rest of my life, I have spent thinking, what did that mean that I should have been saved? Could it be that God had a special purpose for my life? Could it be that God has a special purpose for your life? You see, I, I believe with all my heart that I am no different than any other person, that I am flesh and blood, I am a sinner. But I've also come to understand that I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. By God's grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. I did not deserve to be loved and forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross. But he has forgiven me. My sins, even mine. Some years passed. I went to school in London. Then I went to Oxford University. Have you heard of Oxford? You probably have, I think. And I went to Lincoln College there, thanks to the generosity of a Duke of Buckingham who paid for my tuition. I was able to go to that marvelous school, and I was a commoner. It was a most unusual and extraordinary thing for a small-town boy from a poor Anglican priest to be able to go to Oxford. But it was God's grace again, providing a generous benefactor who made it possible for me to matriculate at London or at Lincoln. And so those years passed, and then some, my father became ill, and by then I was an Oxford fellow, which meant I taught in Lincoln College. And in 17 and 27, father became very ill, and he said, John, please come home. Of course, by letter, he sent this letter, John, please come home, care for the congregations. There were two small congregations, the little village of Epworth, which is a, a beautiful little town setting on the high part, the only high part of this swampy marsh, Isle of Axholm, as it's called, the only part that's raised high enough that the water did not come over in high time, times of high rains. That little village, Father was the priest of St. Andrew, a church that's been there since the 5th century. For now, in your time, 1,500 years, persons have been worshiping in that one church. It is an amazing thing. And a little congregation outside of town, Father also cared for the people in the little village of Root. And there he would preach the word. And so now that Father was ill, I came and cared for the people there some 18 months. And then the dean of the university said, Mr. Wesley, to me, you must return. And I was never so happy in all my life <laughs> to get to return to that great a university of learning and growth where my, th my heart and my mind thrived in that setting. And then some years passed and 
As I returned there, though, my, by then my younger brother Charles, I, have you heard? I think you might have heard of him, yes? The writer of some 7,000 hymns, <laughs> the great poet. Some of the great poetry that has become a part of my prayer life were those things that my younger brother Charles, why is it always your younger brother that shows you up? Charles wrote this that became a great hymn. This is thy will I know that I should holy be, should let my sins this moment go, this moment turn to thee. It is a part of my prayer life on almost every other day to pray that prayer in morning prayers. This is thy will I know that I should holy be. Oh, it reminds me that every day I must battle against the temptations of sin and my own pride and ego and say, Lord, that I should wholly be, should let my sins this moment go, this moment turn to Thee. And then I came to your country. It was the most dismal failure of my life. Not because it's your country. Please do not interpret that. But it was, uh, I was sent here, General Oglethorpe had begun a, a mission, if you will, at St. Simon's Island in Georgia. It's not Georgia, it's Georgia, named after King George. And I would not, however, encourage you to say to your friends from Atlanta that Georgia was started as a penal colony. No, they would not like that, but tis so. So General Oglethorpe asked me if I would come and care for the prisoners as well as the Native Americans, the Indians. And as I would write, as I left that place in a dismal failure, I came to save the Indians, but oh God, who would save one John Wesley? You see, I still not had had not the assurance that my sins had been forgiven. Had not that assurance. I'd had a difficult experience, many of which, and your pastors can tell you, suffice it to say, a young man and a young woman, her name was Sophie. Pastor Corinne can tell you the story. It doesn't end very well. I left your country with ten charges pending against me. Most of them were liturgical charges because I happened to jilt the daughter of the high magistrate was not wise on my part. She thought we would marry. I'm not very good marriageable material, I must admit, in my older years. And so I fled because I had denied she and her new husband as she came and stood before me and holy, received Holy Communion one Sunday and said, John, we are getting married. And I thought she was still interested in me. Foolish me. Then, perhaps one of the greatest sins of my life, I denied them communion. Oh, God, have mercy on my soul for such a heinous act as this. Some months there was a trial, some months it, there was to be a trial, but 
It dragged on. The magistrate would not set a date for it. I was getting anxious. It was getting in the way of my ministry. And finally, I boarded a ship in the cover of darkness in December in the year of our Lord, 1737, to return to London. It was a difficult journey. It's not a good time to be on the North Sea in a sailing vessel in the winter months. And often I was afraid that we would perish. But on ship with us were a group of Moravian Christians, Moravians, pious women and men whose God was so real to them, who they sang God's hymns and praises. And all the while, while the ship was rocking and reeling and I was fearful that we were going to die at sea, they were singing hymns and songs of praise. And after the storm subsided, I said to one of them, Sir, he knew who I was. Yes, Mr. Wesley, what can we do for you, sir? I want the assurance of faith that you have. He said, well, when you return to London, look up one Peter Baylor. He was a follower of Count von Zinzendorf, the great Moravian mystic and saint who taught his people how to piously live before the Lord. So Mr. Baylor and I began a series of conversations which culminated finally on Sunday, May the 21st, 1738, my brother Charles went to a gathering on Aldersgate Street where he, in a moment of great emotion and letting of his own soul, gave his life fully and totally to Jesus. Again, why is it always your younger brother that shows you the way? Then he said, John, why don't you go to that gathering on Aldersgate Street? For three days he kept saying, John, why don't you go? Finally, on Wednesday, the 24th of May, in the year of our Lord, 38, I went very unwillingly, I wrote in my journal, to a gathering on Aldersgate Street where one of them was reading Luther's preface as Pastor read this morning from the Romans, the book of Romans. And as that person was reading about the salvation that Christ offers, in that moment, I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that my sins, even mine, had been forgiven. Now, I had been a follower of Jesus since I was a very small child, but somehow it became real to me in my older years. Somehow it finally all made sense and I fully gave my heart to Jesus. Was everything perfect after that? No. Was everything just as I wanted after that? No. But there was an assurance that in the midst of the storms of life, I knew that God would never leave me, that God's grace would 
enveloped me and sustained me. And just after that, as I went to begin the ministry, you've heard of George Whitfield. He was a very famous preacher, more in your country than ours. He'd been a part of our holy club at Epworth. He'd been involved in so many things, and he felt called to come to your country to be an evangelist. And in the wake of that, he said, John, will you pick up the work? You see, we'd begun a, a, an evangelism ministry in Bristol, and thousands were coming to hear Brother Whitfield share the good news of the gospel. And now he was going to leave, and he said, John, I want you to take over. I, Mr. Whitfield, I know not how to do that. He said, trust in the Lord and do it, I'm leaving. So he did, and so I did. So in that place, the Methodist movement began. And if you go there today, I've been told that you could still see the remnants of the first church that we built there. You could see the many things that God has done through the people called Methodists. Because, you see, it was always not about us. We have, our commitment is to do good in the world. The mark of a Methodist is one who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbors himself. You see, we have, did you know we were the first to start credit unions? Not for the wealthy. <laughs> but for the poor so that they could purchase a home. Did you know that we Methodists were among the first to visit in prisons and hospitals, not because the people were so wonderful, but because they were in need of God's grace and hope? Were you aware that we were the first to begin a feeding ministry for the hungry? This is the mark of a Methodist, one who cares about his people. And the people of his community, your pastor, was sharing with me this morning about how you are seeking to be God's agent in the world. You see, it is not for us to come in here and just get a little Jesus and then go out into the world. <laughs> you see, the goal of religion, listen now, the goal of religion is not to get us into heaven the goal of religion is to get heaven into us. Heaven into us. Amen? Amen? To get God's love and grace so imbuing and embodying our life that when we leave this place, we do not just go back to the same old thing, but God is changing us and transforming us. God has sent us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You've heard that story. You know it is true. So the mark of a Methodist is one who shows love. Our mission statement, I understand you are big on those these days. <laughs> Our mission statement was to reform the nation and spread scriptural holiness. To reform the nation and spread scriptural holiness. It is not to be the most upstanding and respectable people in our community. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not our mission. Our mission is to love the broken, the hurting, the lonely. When was the last time you prayed for a widow who was grieving? Or when is the last time you checked on a hungry young family that may live 
and another part of town? When is the last time you encouraged a broken-hearted and discouraged person? You know what Jesus said when you've done it to the least of these. What's the rest of it? You've done it unto me. Yes, it is so. That is the mark of a Methodist. Well, I know not the time. Anyone have the time? It looks like it's uh, getting... You see, I'm so used to two hours, I'm just getting warmed up, and I, I can see your fidgeting in you. I see the choir there. They're ready to move on to. Got other things to do in this world. I'm not pointing to them because I'm only seeing in them what I'm seeing in you. So I know Mr. Wesley may like to preach longer, but he has learned to watch the congregation, and when they start fidgeting and whispering and looking at their watches, <laughs> Mr. Wesley knows tis time for him to cease his talking. But before I do that, I want to remind you again, as I've often been quoted, since I've been quoted saying this so much, I guess I better say it. Number one, the world is our parish. We are called to be in ministry around the world. There are Methodist persons, I'm told, in all parts of your world and our world today. I celebrate that God has used us as a movement to transform. But really, I want to remind you to do good. To do good every day. To not perhaps count the cost, but to know what a difference it can make in the soul and body of another. And so, as I often have been quoted as saying, so now I shall say, do all the good you can, by all the means you can at all the times you can, in all the places you can, for all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That is so. Well, one final thought before I take my leave. I'm an old man, you can tell by my gray hair, and as I look around here, I feel quite at home with gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with it, mind you. But as I have grown older, it may seem peculiar to you, but I suppose I got this from my father who did the very same thing. But I've often thought, it's a strange thought, I know, but we Wesleys are rather strange people. I've often thought, what if I could choose, what would my last words be? If I, if I were in my right mind, and if I had all my faculties, what would I want my last words on this earth to be? So I have given it considerable thought. And I have determined that if it is possible, these will be my final words. The best of all is God is with us. In times of joy and in times of sorrow, in times of pain, in times of despair, in times of intense joy, the best of all is God is with us. 
Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You created all that is, and you love us even when we do not deserve it, when we are not worthy. Even then, O oh God, your grace is most operative in our world and in our lives. So thank you, dear Jesus, that you were willing to die for our sin. Thank you, dear Jesus, that you've shown us the way to live for you. Now inspire us, dear Jesus, to go out and be your hands and feet in a world that is so in need of your love. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and all of us shall together say, Amen. Amen.